Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, I'm Logan Camden. I'm Carson Brabber. And this is Nerd Sesh. No! Oh my god, how could he do that? Are you on Don't What? Charles Darwin. Alright, well Logan, as the playoffs approach and we really start to wind down with this NBA regular season, we gotta look ahead to the postseason. And it always seems to be that When it comes to those big playoff series, there can be a couple guys in those role position spots, maybe even a second guy on a team who's not a true star who can completely swing a series and who can really make that impact that drives winning at the highest level. And today, we're going to look at a whole bunch of those guys. Our assignment for today was bring in five guys who you can see swinging a playoff series. So I've brought in five, Logan, you've brought in five, and we will be discussing that in great detail today. I'm very excited for it, but I do want to address off the bat If you have been paying close attention to NerdSess, you may have missed that two of our last three scheduled shows haven't gone up on Apple or Spotify or anything. That is because we had some very unexpected audio difficulties on both of them that will not be happening going forward because we're in a different space now. But just wanted to explain that if you caught them live, congratulations. But I also apologize for the massive echo you were dealing with. The good news is, since some of you guys missed a trivia time this Monday because we were unable to upload it, to Apple and Spotify, etc. We're going to be doing another one this Monday to make up for it. Really good news for us because it's so much fun, but just wanted to get that little disclaimer out there. But now, Logan, let's start with your first guy who you think can swing a playoff series. Who is he? Uh, my first guy is Jordan Clarkson, uh, and you know he's just been a consistent, reliable scorer each and every night for this Jazz team, Carson. He's only got four games under 10 points this season. He's got 15 20-point games and two 30-point games this season. One of them he went for 40. Um, Clarkson's a really volatile scorer, man, who can just put a team away when the offense is fully clicking and he's knocking down his shots. Uh, this season, he's shooting 65% on floaters, man. He's great at getting into the lane, and He's such a difficult shot maker. That's a trait of a lot of these guys that, or some of these guys that I'm going to talk about today. He shoots 56% on turnarounds, 51% on fadeaways. And like I said, when the offense is clicking, man, he's a 38% catch and shooter. He's reliable there. When I talk about difficult shots, man, the really tough guys can knock them down when guys in his face. Clarkson is just as elite at doing that. He shoots over 40% when defenders play him tight, 44% when a defender is within two to four feet, 49% when a defender is within two feet. Now, there are a few things I want to address about Clarkson's game that I don't like as much. He's not the best decision maker in the mid-range, and sometimes he can perilously rely on that floater a little bit. Sometimes Carson, you know, he gets trapped and just doesn't know what to do. He's not an elite passer or playmaker, doesn't really have that great vision, so he panics sometimes and just will kind of shoot out of turn, so to speak. But again, when you're so good at making difficult shots, I don't really think that's as big a deal, but... Um, he's a good off-ball relocator. He's not really an aware and adept cutter either. He doesn't really affect the game in that way. He kind of stays on the perimeter. And he's not really a strong finisher and doesn't really draw a lot of fouls. But there are just really uh, very few guys in this league, Carson, with this kind of handle, scoring skill set, confidence, silky smooth jumper, and ability to just get hot and in rhythm. And in a single series, Clarkson is a guy who can just get stupid hot and run a team off the floor. Absolutely. Obviously an electric scoring talent for all the reasons that you laid out. And I think this is a jazz team that has a bunch of candidates for a guy who could swing a series. I consider Joe Ingles for this list. For example, I think that he's a guy with this all around impact could really impact winning at the highest level in a big series. Here are some fun stats to sort of contextualize just how much 
Clarkson being on a hot streak or being on a cold streak can impact the Jazz's results on the year as a whole because one of my favorite things to look at for guys specifically on this list is how they perform in wins versus how they perform in losses because generally you don't see that much disparity between guys. I mean, with stars, they're going to be pretty darn consistent either way. Some of these guys, though, there is a huge difference in how they perform. And Clarkson is one of those guys. In wins, scores over 18 points per game. In losses, scores under 16. And it's the efficiency that is just jaw-droppingly different. In wins, 43-36-96 splits, 57% true shooting. In losses, 38-29.982 splits, 48.6% true shooting overall, which I think is just indicative of the fact that he's going to be that volume guy no matter what. His usage rate is the exact same in wins and losses. It's just sometimes those tough shots aren't going to fall and he can take you out of the rhythm of your offense and he can have an inefficient night and you go down with that. Or on his best nights, he's electric, he's explosive, and he carries you to those wins. So I think he's a very good choice. Obviously, the presumptive favorite for six man of the year right now. I don't think my six man of the year, I would take Ingles, honestly, out of the two of them. I had them as co-sixth men at the All-Star break. And I think that... Clarkson's efficiency has just continued to trend downwards a little bit, but undeniably a guy who on his best day can score with the best of them in the sport, and that is such a valuable thing to have in the playoffs when you always want that little extra punch. He's a guy who can provide that, no question. Yeah, he's about a league average uh, by efficiency, but you know, like you said, he's a guy who can fill it up. I want to ask you, Carson, when you're talking about guys like Joe Ingles between Clarkson, like for this list, where did you strike the balance between a guy like Ingles who can affect the game with like his playmaking and stuff like that versus Clarkson who you know is such a difficult shot maker I think that you know that shot making is just so much more valuable in the playoffs that's why I think I leaned a little bit more scoring but how did you strike that balance I think they're honestly kind of the two archetypes for players that you're going to take it's the Swiss Army Knife who can do everything who can really D up and defend a high-level player on the other team and impact the game there, the guy who can play make at a high level and who can get his own bucket well enough, or it's the guy who can carry a team with his scoring load, and that's actually kind of the guy who I have for my first choice here, although I really have a trio, so I've already broken the rules on this first one, Logan, but I just think the Sixers are such a fascinating team because obviously, no question about the guy driving it at the top, not too many questions about Tobias Harris, how he'll perform. Simmons, obviously, there are questions about how he performs in the postseason compared to the regular season, but you're getting a star-level player either way. But outside of that, obviously, I think it's going to be really interesting to see who steps up because I think that if this team is going to play up to their seed, which is obviously the two-seed out east, or maybe even play beyond that, they just need more punch from somebody, particularly on the offensive end where they've been basically average on the year. And the first guy I look at for that is is Shake Milton, who is in some ways a diet Jordan Clarkson, if you will. And we've talked about him before in great detail, one of our favorites, but he's just in such a unique position because the Sixers have no other punch off the bench. And Milton is maybe not the greatest playmaker. He's competent there. He's maybe not the greatest shooter night to night, but a man who's an ambidextrous finisher, gets downhill, can knock down big shots, can make high-level passes, and has undying confidence. And yeah, that can be a double-edged sword. And it's not like he's absurdly efficient on the year as a whole, but I would argue his role makes it pretty tough to be. And I think he could average 18 to 20 meaningful points per game in a playoff series. Not throughout the whole playoffs, but I think there's a series in which he can put the bench on his back. And sometimes that's all you need. So he, to me, brings that scoring punch. But there's a couple other guys who I think are interesting candidates on this Sixers team, too. The first guy is Matisse Thibel. Because if he's hitting 36% of his threes, which he has not done on this year, but he basically did last year and you therefore feel comfortable playing him 25 minutes per game because he's not a complete offensive liability, you're talking about the best defensive perimeter duo in basketball, pairing him with Ben Simmons, and in a series versus any team that has a really high-level wing duo. I would think out east, personally, of the Celtics, right? You have a couple guys who can make life hard on both Tatum and Jalen Brown, and that is huge. And obviously, if they were to get to the finals, it would be the same deal with Kawhi and PG. Now, do I expect them to get to the finals? No. You're going to need somebody to swing a series before then. And maybe that's where you look at a guy like Seth Curry, who I think has a huge potential to swing games just because of the pure shooting, how valuable that can be, and particularly how valuable it can be to the Sixers team that has never been, obviously, perimeter-centric, three-point heavy, and needs that high-level floor spacing. And they've gotten it more this year than in years past, of course, because of Curry in a lot of ways. And here's another guy with the really interesting win-loss split differentials. In wins this year, he's put up 14 points per game on 50% from the field, 48% from three, hasn't missed a free throw. In losses, eight points per game, 
on 33% from the field, 31% from three, and 63% from the line. The free throw stat isn't all that meaningful. He's 12 of 19, but I do think it's funny that in wins, he has not missed a single one all year, and in losses, he's missed seven of 19, but I just think for a team like this, obviously, where you have guys collapsing the defense pretty much all day long, particularly Embiid, of course, but if you're talking about in transition, Simmons has that ability as well. Shooting has always been so important, and there are very, very few players in the entire league better than Seth Curry when it comes to just shooting that ball. And so I think that that is always a trait that is going to swing a playoff series. It's always a trait that's going to swing an individual game. So many times you can sort of isolate the result of a game down to who shot better from beyond the arc. And if you're going to try to do that, Seth Curry is going to be a massive benefactor to your effort. So that's why I think that all three of those guys could really have an impact in swinging a series, and that's why I couldn't just single out one of them because I don't know which one of them it's going to be, and I guess that kind of defeats the purpose of choosing one of them, but you know what? I wanted all three, so take that. Well, I love all the selections. Uh, Matisse is a guy I considered for the list, definitely, just because of his defensive impact, and I think in a hypothetical against the Celtics, man, the Sixers are pretty well equipped for Honestly, not just the Celtics. I think they're just pretty well equipped defensively for about any team yeah. uh, out east. You know, if, if you're matched up with Brooklyn or whoever, um, or, or Boston, uh, it, like you mentioned. I also had Shake on my list as well here for guys who I think can swing a playoff series. Something interesting, Carson, you talk about his jump shooting. Shake this season is shooting 34% on just pure jump shots. Carson, he's shooting 54% on pull-up jumpers. He is just so much better by himself getting into the lane and putting up shots like that. He's shooting 50% on floaters. And, I mean, that's where him his impact is felt, man. His ability to just create for himself, get into the lane, and not get to his spots, knock down those tough shots. Uh, I think Milton is the most important part of this equation because, again, Seth, he's good. He's decent at creating a shot. He's a really good catch-and-shooter, but, you know, most of the time guys have to create for him. Um, just with like how you mentioned the Sixers, how average their offense has been, they need somebody to step up. And if I'm picking somebody, I'm going with Shake. I agree. I just think it's also with Seth, because he doesn't have to create his own shot and he kind of just gets his touches within the flow of the offense, he can be hyper-efficient in those opportunities and he could make eight of nine threes in a game. Like that's obviously about as good as it can get, but it's not absurdly impossible and unthinkable from a shooter of his caliber. I agree with you on Shake. The man is just an expert at carving out buckets, and that's what he needs to do, and that's what he does really well. So, going to be fascinating because neither of us are massive Sixers fans at this point, obviously having been hurt in the past, although this is a different team. But I still don't think they're on par with the Nets. I definitely would not pick them in that series. But it's interesting because they do have some of those swing guys, no question, on this roster. Okay, so let's move on. Who is your second swing player that you want to talk about today? Yeah, I want to say those scars from from Philly have not still healed. Yeah. Uh, but um, then my next guy is actually a guy who's pretty similar to Shake in the sense that, uh, you know, just how often and how good he is at getting his own buckets. And that's Michael Porter Jr. Uh, he's been great in isolation and as a pick-and-roll scorer this season. And he's got, uh, similar to Shake, man, really good burst when guys overcommit to him, uh, trying to close out on jump shots, again, because he's such a great shooter. Um, he's great at getting to his spots and just knocking him down. He's 92nd percentile in isolation, 92nd percentile in pick-and-roll. MPJ does a lot of the little stuff really well. He's 90th percentile in transition and 63rd percentile as a cutter. Um there are a few things I don't like, and I think it's important to address stuff about these guys that uh, you know I don't like as much as well. I always question Michael Porter Jr.'s overall court awareness. Uh, I question his shot IQ sometimes. He just immediately shoots when he gets the rock, no matter how many defenders are closing out on him. But <laughs> when you can shoot like this, man, it's like, all right, MPJ, I'll just let you do it. His jumper's crazy smooth. His height gives him that ability to shoot over anybody, and he's an extremely efficient and dominant shot maker. Carson, this season, he's shooting 76% uh, in the restricted area, nearly 49% in the mid-range, over 47% uh, in the corners, and uh, off catch and shoot. He's got 18.5 points on the season, but since the All-Star break, he's putting up 22.5 points uh, on 57-47 splits. Obviously, it's hard to discern between his success and Jokic's uh, when they spend so much time on the floor, Carson, but uh, the Nuggets have an offensive rating of 122 with MPJ on the floor. He is just elite on that end, and he's an absolutely lethal and elite bucket getter, and with Murray out, I really think he can help the Nuggets offense come playoff time because there's going to be moments when you need those desperation buckets, and... Uh, MPJ is one of the best difficult shot makers and just jump shooters in the league in general. Yeah. MPJ is always interesting because 
I think that although he is obviously a great player who can effortlessly score 20 a game, I will remain pessimistic about his ceiling until we see him become a way higher level creator for himself and others. Because I just disagree when you say that he creates for himself at a high level. He doesn't. Everything that he does is predicated on him being able to hit shots in tight windows and just being a dead eye and Jokic getting him the ball in his spots. He barely shoots pull-up threes on the year. He shot very poorly on them when he does take them. He's under 32%. He's not an explosive athlete who can get by people off the bounce. Obviously, you put the ball in his hands, and as you said, he has no idea how to actually handle out of the pick and roll and facilitate, which is what you have to do to become a star. So the way he could swing a series is what you touched on. Just every time he touches the ball, it goes through the net because he is that good of a shooter. And that is a transcendent skill set that we ha- that he has. At 6'10", shooting better than 44% from beyond the arc, he has, to me, one of the, I want to say, like three or four deadliest pure jump shots in basketball right now. He just doesn't have any of the other traits, except for the cutting and fighting on the offensive glass. He does both those things very well. I feel like, though, if we're talking about the guy who's going to carry the Nuggets through a series, other than Jokic, obviously, MPJ might score the most points, but I think the swing guys are a Will Barton or a Monte Morris, the pick-and-roll ball handler types who I think are going to carry the brunt of the load there. And obviously, MBJ has ramped up his scoring, no question about it. He's been going berserk since Jamal got hurt, and as you predicted, has been averaging better than 25 points per game. And he's going to have a massive impact in how high the Denver Nuggets can fly, but I still think it's going to be up to somebody else to step up and actually really handle and facilitate in those big moments alongside Jokic. I mean, I really considered uh, Will Barton, as you mentioned, too, just because yeah. of how great he's been at, at handling and out of the pick and roll. I think you're just an MPJ hater, man. I'm not. What did I say that was not fair? I think he's a little better at getting into the mid-range and getting his own shot than, than you think. I don't really care about how well a guy gets into the mid-range. He can't get downhill. He doesn't get to the line. He doesn't get those high-probability attempts at the rim unless he's cutting. And the only reason he can get to the mid-range is because he catches the ball there and all he has to do is take a step and he can shoot over anybody. And that's a great skill to have. I mean, obviously, that's what defines a guy like Kevin Durant. But I will just always be a skeptic of him as a superstar talent, as some people really present him to be, until I see so much more out of him. I just think when it when it pertains to the Nuggets, you know, you talk about his lack of playmaking, and I definitely think it's there. I just think when it comes to a team like Denver, when you have playmakers like Monte Morris, like Nikola Jokic, it's not really as important. I would rather take a guy who can get his own bucket in a system like this because I just think that playmaking factor kind of goes out the window when you have so many good creators around you. But you have the ball in your hands at the end of the day. You have to be the one making smart decisions. Who would you rather have with the ball in the last couple minutes of a game, Will Barton or Michael Porter Jr.? Michael Porter Jr., easily. Like, I mean, I trust Will to make decisions way more than I do MPJ, obviously, but MPJ is just simply a buck. He is a buck. I think I trust Will Barton more, though. Keep in mind, this is Will the Thrill Barton we're talking about here. Another guy who is a fantastic, difficult shot maker, and I would say can actually create just a more variety of good looks for himself, and I think that we've seen why they trust him in the time that Jamal's been out. He's had some huge clutch moments And I just trust the intelligence and the experience more than I do MPJ. And look, MPJ could average 28 points per game in a series. So I'm not going to sit here and say that I completely disagree with you. Like, he could go off because of the shot. But I don't think he is going to be a guy who I really want to rely on in the biggest moments. And I still don't think he's that good at creating for himself. He just has an incredible God-given ability, and that is the shot at that height. But... Obviously having a tremendous season and taking a massive leap from year one to year two. And honestly, could make a smidge of a case at most improved. I don't think it should really ever go to second year guys, but is obviously a different player than what he was last year. Although some of the same deficiencies do remain. Okay, so I'm going to stick out West. And I am going to, for the second time, talk about two guys. I promise I won't do it again after this, but... These are just a couple interesting teams where I think you can look at a couple guys on the squad and say they could possibly swing the result. So I have right here Kristaps Porzingis and Josh Richardson for the Mavs because as we've seen all year long, a lot of the Mavs' success is just going to come down to shooting. Obviously, that is what did them in in the first 20-something games of the year. They couldn't knock down a shot. In wins on this season, 
they've shot 39% from deep. In losses, they've shot 32%. Massive discrepancy. And there's going to be a discrepancy for basically everyone in basketball these days because, again, so often it's just who shoots better from behind that line. But they have a pretty exceptional discrepancy there. But outside of that, I think there's a couple guys who could really swing stuff because some of their guys I just trust. I trust Dorian Finney-Smith to do his job, and maybe he's not going to knock down every shot, but for the most part, I think he's reliable there, and defensively, I know it will contribute. I trust THJ to be that really high-level floor spacer, the kind of guy who can explode on any given night with the shot from beyond the arc. I trust Jalen Brunson to do what he does at a high level. Maxi Kleba, maybe the shot will come and go, but I trust the effort defensively, and for the most part, he's not going to try to step outside of his role. But I think that when you're looking at KP and Josh Richardson, these are the guys who theoretically should have been the second and third best players on this team. KP obviously is the second best player, no matter what qualms you may have with him. And the Mavs' most unstoppable offense remains the Luka KP pick and roll. And Luka makes everybody better. He can single-handedly lift an offense to being very, very good, or as he did last year, the best ever. But there is nothing more unstoppable than that pick and pop when it's going. And when KP is rolling as well, and when he's not being afraid to actually get downhill, it just becomes that much better. Another guy who has massive win-loss discrepancies as far as his efficiency. In wins, he shoots 50% from the field, 41% from three. In losses, 44% from the field, 30% from three. Because if he's not hitting those threes, obviously and he's not hitting those jump shots in general, it's hard for him to really maximize his value as a player. So I think it becomes really about him being aggressive and hitting those big shots. And if you have KP playing at that level, you have a second offensive star. He could score 25 points per game in a series, no doubt in my mind. He could also score 12 points per game in a series if those shots aren't falling and he doesn't try to carve out another way to get himself to the bucket. And he's leaning on those turnarounds so heavily. So I think he's a massive swing guy. And then Richardson has been so disappointing this year. And I've kept waiting for him to really turn it up another level, and he hasn't done it all that consistently. But when he has done it, it's been in Mavs wins. He's been so much better when they win than when they lose this year. In wins, putting up 13.8 points per game on 47, 38, 95 splits. In losses, 10 points per game on 38, 22, 81 splits. And what disappoints me is he hasn't been all that significant of a boost to this team They're actually six points per 100 worse with him out there. And for a guy who should have so much all-around value defensively as that secondary playmaker, as a catch-and-shooter, as a guy who can get his own buckets and spot, everything that I thought he would be coming into this year, he just hasn't been reliable in enough of those categories. Hasn't shot well in pull-up situations and has been miserable off the catch, 29.9%. This is a guy who was at 38.5% on catch-and-shoot threes two years ago. It was at one point in his career a 40-plus percent shooter from deep and just has been awful this year. And his shooting can swing a game. And I don't think Josh Richardson is a 30% three-point shooter. I think he's a 36, 37% three-point shooter. And that's what I want to see from him. And if he is going to really help this team fly as high as they can, he needs to play at a high level. Because first of all, he just needs to shoot the ball well. It would be nice if he could bring some of that scoring and secondary playmaking to scoring off the bounce. I don't know if I even trust him enough to give him those touches right now, but that would take them up another level. I don't know why I'm giving him the ball over Jalen Brunson, though, if I want a guy to get his own bucket. But I just think these two guys in tandem can totally swing what the Mavs are capable of because the superstar at the top is not in question. I would say pieces four through seven are not in question. Really good guys. But it's the two and three spot where you look up and down the West and you think, I don't know how the Mavs compare night to night on their best nights. Absolutely, they can go toe to toe on their worst nights. They got a couple guys who can really fail to show up, and that's why I think that both these guys, again, can swing a series in so many different ways. No, I think you hit it on the head with Josh Richardson, and he's such an interesting case just because of how you laid out of how inconsistent he's played. I mean, if the Mavericks are going to win games, they need a reliable second option uh, to create for other people, to create shots. That's the reason that they traded for him initially because of this Swiss Army knife value that he has. I considered a guy like Tim Hardaway, but Hardaway's game is kind of, um, it's kind of, you know, just tunnel-based. It's he's, he's a shooter. That's kind of all he brings is an off-ball shooter. Richardson, I think, may be the biggest piece of this equation, Carson. I mean, yeah. I think that if the Mavericks are going to get deep into the playoffs, he is going to have to take his game up another level. They just cannot rely solely on Luka. Do you trust Josh Richardson to do that right now? Hell no. <laughs> I don't really either. I think that Luka is going to create those opportunities no matter what, and if the shots are falling, they can push, honestly, almost anybody to seven. 
but you're always going to need that extra punch and you're always going to need those guys who can do multiple things because you don't win a playoff series with one guy unless that one guy is LeBron James. And even then, you're not going to win a title with just one guy. So, all right. Who do you have for us next? Uh, my next guy is DeAndre Ayton. And, you know, you're discussing versatility, Carson. There's a lot of versatility when it comes with Ayton. Uh, he's been putting up uh, nearly 16 points per game on 67% uh, shooting from the field post-All-Star game. And he's a great, dangerous lob threat who can bully teams with bad post defense. He's 93rd percentile as a role man. And sometimes, Carson, you'll see the stretch from the Suns. He commands a few too many post touches some games, in my opinion. And he doesn't really have elite touch near the rack. Uh, he's got a decent hook shot. Uh, he's hitting it at a rate of 62% uh, this season. Uh, decent uh, with his turnaround hook shot, uh, hitting it at a clip of 54% this season. While I don't always love these post touches, it does give the Suns reliable offense when they're struggling to score. You know, smaller guys simply cannot bang with DeAndre Ayton. Now, again, I want to address uh, things that I don't like about Ayton. He's a poor jump shooter. He's shooting 38% on jumpers this season. Now, he has started taking some pull-ups from the elbow and the low block, some short fadeaways towards the baseline. It does give me hope that he can become a decent shooter one day. It's just not his game right now, but... He's not the most well-rounded, complete offensive player right now, but I think he can get back the game, uh, a playoff series in other ways. He's a really competent defender now. He can change the game on that end. He's really progressed this season. He's 78.5 percentile as a defensive role man. And, you know, I'd like for him to be a little more aggressive sometimes. Carson going up to block shots. He's not really extremely aggressive right now, but he's a good help side rim protector and straight-up rim protector. Players shoot 10% worse on Aiden inside six feet. Um... And he's getting nearly 11 boards a game this season, Carson, which I think is an important aspect of Aiden's game. He has the fourth highest contested rebound percentage of any player with re uh, nine rebounds per game this season. He's got a strong lower body and boxes out well. His impact is not felt solely on offense, but I think with the progression we have seen from his game defensively and rebounding, he can bang with those really tough offensive centers out west. And he's an interior force that can bully guys who were just uh, lacking in uh, interior defensively uh, because of how dangerous he is as a lob threat. Um, I think he is a really important factor in the Suns going deep into the playoffs this season. Chris Paul and D-Book are going to show up. They are going to win you close games. You need DeAndre Ayton to anchor that interior, to close out on shooters well, to rotate well on that back end. I would say that just because I would say that Aiden is the most important part of this puzzle, just because you know that Paul and Booker are going to show up every night. Mm -hmm. He's the big swing guy here in Phoenix. And I think you can say that you even trust a guy like Bridges to do his job every night because it's pretty simple. Make those shots off the catch, cut, and play your butt off on defense, and he'll do a great job of that. Aiton is always going to be more enigmatic and more interesting than a guy like Bridges. Maybe not as good, but maybe on his best day a little bit better. And I think that you touched on a really interesting aspect of this. It's that... DeAndre Ayton is a 250-pound, incredibly strong man. He obviously just doesn't know it as much as he should. But we're trending in the right direction, and I do think he's done a good job of simplifying his game offensively this year, not taking as many of those mid-range jumpers that have been so frustrating. We've seen his efficiency leap because of that. And so the aggression is a little bit better. I still wish that it were better more consistently. And there are games where he says, okay, I'm going to go out there and try to get 30 on whoever's guarding me tonight. And that can work. I look at the matchups out West and I think, okay, obviously against the Lakers, that's not going to happen. And that's probably the most important series. Against the Jazz, not going to happen. You're not going to give any trouble to Rudy Gobert. His impact, to me, will be felt much more on the defensive end, and I trust him there, no question about it, because I think he's taken so many strides, obviously, on that end. Against Jokic, you're definitely not going to be given more than you get back right in your face. So, Jokic also isn't a guy you can easily just like move and dominate physically. Obviously, it's going to be slipping past him in the pick and roll and really weaponizing that quickness. So I think Aiden's an interesting guy. And I think that it's going to have to be somebody for the Suns. I thought about campaign for this list just because it was one of the things I talked about when I said that I like the Suns more than the Clippers as Logan begins to laugh because I talk about campaign so much. I think that campaign is a guy who can be a little second offensive engine for you, who's got this brilliant pace out of the pick and roll, who can knock down a big shot, who's going to play make, who's going to compete all around, and the Swiss Army Knives can win you series, Ziz. So, I like campaign. I think that he's an honorable mention for this list. Yes, I do, Logan. Now, 
Is he going to play as much in the playoffs? I don't know. Do you really want him handling all that much when you can kind of stagger it to have either Book or CP3 on the floor the most of the time? Yes, I want campaign handling more than both those guys, and I think he's the best of the three. <laughs> just, I just, only you, man. Only you would pick campaign for, for a te- with a yeah. team that already has two of the best guards in basketball, man. It just cracks me up. Yeah, um, top five, six man of the year candidate, no doubt. I mean, did you consider Dario at all in an equation like this? I thought about it. It's just Dario hasn't been as good lately. Obviously, there was a time where he was just money, and he was dominating. And the Suns are still way better with him on the floor this year than they are with him off of it. The shots just aren't falling as much. He's not quite been as consistent as that offensive presence. But yeah, I think he's another guy with the Swiss Army knife value. The playmaking, the post scoring, the shooting. So... I would say he's a candidate, but Cam is a little different just because he's initiating the offense, so he can impose himself on the game a little more easily. So out of these three guys off the Suns bench, who do you think is most important to the team's success in the playoffs, Saric, Johnson, or Payne? I think it's Payne. I think that Cam Johnson is obviously going to bring value as that shooter, a guy who's going to compete on defense too. But his role is just more simple. Like, to me, campaign can really impact the flow and the outcome of a game in a way that, yeah, a pure shooter can if he gets crazy hot, but night to night probably isn't going to. So, I like the Aiden pick. I think it's interesting, and I think that it's going to be a huge test of where he's at as a player. Because this year, maybe the statistical production hasn't seen a leap. I feel like he's better this year than last year. Probably not by as much as Suns fans would have wanted or as much of us expected when he was the first overall pick. And I thought he was going to be a star in this league, no doubt. I don't think he ever gets there. This is a chance, though, if he can really be that high-level scorer to show that he possibly could be. But I also will say, I don't want DeAndre Ayton trying to force himself as a scorer because sometimes he tries to force himself as a scorer and in his head that means post-up guy, shoot turnaround, and that's a bad shot. And I don't want that taking away the flow of this Suns offense when it's just really not good basketball. Okay, so... I've got another young guy here in my third spot. I have Tyler Hero. And I think that the Heat are obviously such an interesting team because we continue to think the best version of them is a potential contender. We have not seen the best version of them once this entire year. Offensively, obviously, it's been a lot of ineptitude. Jimmy's done what he can. But there's just not enough shooting. They're 26 and three-point percenters. They're 15th and three-pointers made, as we've said many times over, for a team that was defined by perimeter shooting and the variety of options they had there last year. When you dip to now being in the bottom five of the league in three-point percentage, that's obviously going to significantly impact your ceiling. You could argue Victor Oladipo should be here. I think he probably should as well as a candidate at the very least because of the two-way impact. I just have no idea what to expect from him. We still only saw those four games. Haven't seen him back out there in a while. And the reason I think it's Hero is because of his offensive versatility, where he can be that incredible off-ball weapon, and he can be that secondary ball handler who can run pick and roll and stretches, who can make good decisions as a playmaker, and he's just a better shooter than what we've seen this year. He was 39% last year. He's 39% from three in wins this year, but he's under 31% in losses. That just doesn't make sense. He's a better shooter than that. And so I think that... The Heat really just need somebody to be what Drogage was last year if they're going to go far again. Because defensively, they're better than last year. And with Oladipo out there in full force, they could be a lot better than last year. But offensively, they've taken such a step back. And Jimmy just cannot be the lone offensive engine on a really great team. And Bam, as good as he is, isn't going to bring you that floor spacing. And I think that this year, the Goran Dragic is more likely to be hero than it is Dragic himself because I think one guy is trending in the right direction and the other guy is trending in the wrong direction. So he's got offensive upside that is substantial. And I think that there's a few guys you could make the case for the Heat, maybe even Duncan Robinson just having a crazy shooting series. But I'm going to go with hero. It's really interesting to me that you went with hero over Dragic just because I think, I don't know, man. It was just like, I thought that Drogic was kind of washed last year in the regular season and he just kind of flipped a switch. Mm -hmm. To me, it's like, why can't he just... I mean, like, don't get me wrong. Drogic has looked a step slower this season, but he looked a step slow last year. I don't know why we... I disagree. I think he was a lot better in last year's regular season than he's been this year. So do do you expect any flip of a switch whatsoever from Drogic in the postseason? I don't know if we can just expect him to... 
become a third star in back-to-back years when that's not what he was in the regular season. And obviously at 34 years old now is not trending in the right direction, almost 35, and has been playing some of the worst basketball of his career and obviously hasn't been healthy for the entire season as well. Not that he was healthy for all of last year either or that he played his best basketball in the regular season last year. And he probably is a guy who is always going to become more valuable in the playoffs because of the three-level scoring, the big-time shot-making, obviously the great playmaking. All of that is still possible for him. But I just think with Hero, it's a little more reliable because of the shot, because of, again, the versatility on and off ball. And I think Hero's passing is pretty darn good at this point. It's definitely not Drogic level, but it's more than good enough for me to trust him handling out of the pick and roll, which is crazy considering what he was at the beginning of last season where he was pretty much just a really good catch and shooter. Comes so far, and we saw it in last year's playoffs too, but I think it could be either of them. I think it could be Oladipo too. Oladipo should be the best of those three players. We just don't know what he's going to look like in this system. But I really think that at the end of the day, we can agree that he just needs somebody other than their top duo. Yeah, oh, I, I completely agree. Um, and in saying that, I want to ask, so did you consider Kendrick Nunn at all? No. I just think we're going to see what we saw last year where Nunn puts up nice regular season numbers and then playoff time. They have enough competent creators to where he kind of just gets sent to the bottom of the bench and is a last resort. Obviously a talented guy, but they have an abundance of sufficient options who do what he does better, I would say. And Drogic is the epitome of that, and Hero does some of that as well with just more off-ball value. All right, let's keep it moving here. Who is the fourth guy you think can swing a series? Uh, the fourth guy is somebody who's really popular uh, in nerd sesh circles, and that's uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich, man. He has been absolutely elite for the Atlanta Hawks uh, You know, since the Trey injury, since he has come back healthy. Um, this season, you know, he brings value as a catch and shooter. He's at 43% this season, but we've seen a different, I think it's the best shooting we've seen from bogey. I mean, ever he's shooting 43% on step backs, 40% on pull up threes, 48% on pull up jumpers. He's had two 30 point games in the past two weeks, man. He's kind of, he's a little volatile. He's, it's just the best we've ever seen from him, Carson. And it's interesting, you know, he's put up nearly 20, uh, four and four, uh, post all-star break. Uh, what I really think is interesting about Bogdan is just that that he's in Atlanta, man, because I genuinely think I would pick the Milwaukee Bucks out of the East if Bogdan was over there, dude. He is exactly what a lot of these teams need, man, a late-game shot creator, a guy who can facilitate out of the pick-and-roll. He's, he's, he's got a smooth handle, man. He is an offensive Swiss Army knife, and he'd be a valuable asset on any team. To me... I think the Hawks need him, obviously, a little more just because Trey Young is that sole offensive engine. Um, but I don't know, man. I just really think he is that... I don't think he's second star level to where he will carry the Hawks through the playoffs. I think they get eliminated. But I think he would be a really valuable third piece to a team like Miami, like Milwaukee. And he's a valuable asset in any offense, man. So this is awesome because I had Bogey right here as well. He was going to be my fourth guy. So now I've taken one of yours with Shake. You've taken one of mine with Bogey. I think that he is, when he's at his best, a star-level player offensively. And having two stars offensively gives you more than a fighting chance, certainly in any first-round series out East. You talked about how great he's been since March 18th. 20 points per game on 49% from the field, 47% from three. And the Hawks are 14-8 and eight in that time. And obviously, we have seen him at his best when Trey is not out there. When he can be the guy who just goes out there and is that primary ball handler and is also far and away at the top of the food chain as far as who is going to get this big bucket for us. In six games without Trey, he's averaged 25-5 and five on 51% from three. That's not sustainable, but 25 a game, and they're 5-1 and one in those games. They're 5-1 and one without Trey Young, which I think is just a reflection of how many talented players there are in Atlanta, which we tend to undersell, and we're still not looking at this team fully healthy because when Hunter gets back out there, he was their second best player at the beginning of this year. I don't even know if Bogey's their second best player because Capella is so good defensively right now. You have another guy in John Collins who offensively can be a star level player. Atlanta is just awesome. And with the way New York is playing too, if that ends up as the 4-5, I will be thrilled. I think that is an awesome series. But yeah, I just think that Bogey needs to be given more freedom in this offense. And it's been trending in the right direction. He was awful at the start of the year. He just looked out of place. Nothing was falling for him. But the man is special. And stagger his minutes more with Trey. And just let him do more. 
And I think that you have a really special offensive duo then because Trey just has to dominate the ball. That's how he's going to play. And Bogey is lethal off the ball. Fantastic catch and shooter, but he's also a good passer, a savvy passer, and an automatic bucket from all three levels. So, yeah, absolutely he can win you a playoff series. I was saying, I think if it comes down to one shot, one final possession, he's a top 15 guy I want in basketball because he can get it from anywhere, and he is just nails as a jump shooter. Well, so there's two things I want to touch on, Carson. One, uh, I think it's crazy just to look at how this point in the season, how drastically different we're looking at the Atlanta Hawks than mm-hmm. when they had Lloyd Pierce under the helm. Yes. Two, though, in talking about letting Bogey create more for himself, dude, it opens up a different a- aspect of this offense that we haven't seen, and that's utilizing Trey as an off-ball shooter. Yes. I mean, once that happens... This Hawks team is going to be damn near unstoppable. I just think it's a matter of telling Trey to to focus on that, man, because it's just a off-ball movement is just an effort thing, man. It is a, mm-hmm. well, it's knowledge first off, and it's an effort thing. And you have smart ball movers in Hunter when he comes back, in Bogey, who's an excellent passer. I just think that it's something that the Hawks have to do for the best for the best offense to happen. And I think that if if we see that during this playoffs, man, the Hawks are a scary team. We've talked a million times over about how that is the best thing for the Hawks. I don't think we see it these playoffs, though. If something like that is going to happen, a fundamental shift in how Trey approaches the game, it's going to be over an offseason. It may be over years. And so I do wonder if that limits Bogey's ability somewhat. However, I would say in the spots that he does have his touches, which again, there have been more of than there were at the beginning of the year, and in the spots where he does just catch the ball curling off of a screen or he just finds open space from beyond the arc, I think he can maximize those opportunities and easily could score 25 a game in a playoff series, even with Trey out there still sucking up the vast majority of the time on the ball. I'm sorry, dude. I am um, shell-shocked right now. We just got some NFL news. What happened? The uh, Broncos just traded for Teddy Bridgewater. They gave up a uh, six-round pick. What? What is what? Uh, what I think is really weird about that, though, is just that the Panthers are going to have to eat that dead uh, salary cap. So they're paying $41 million to Darnold and Bridgewater this year, and the Broncos basically get them for free. Also, Teddy's only demanding a sixth at this point? Exactly. <laughs> That's crazy. Just the overvaluing of NFL draft picks is always going to be interesting to me. All right. That's staying in the pod. You guys just got a little bit of free NFL talk right there. And by the way, we've got more of it coming later this week. Not two NBA shows this week. We're doing an NFL draft show after the fact as well. So get ready for that, baby. But now it's time for me to talk about my fourth guy. My initial fourth guy was Bogey, but now Evan Fournier. And I think that obviously we were both huge fans of the signing. Here's why, Logan, as you begin to grimace. The Celtics need more offensive punch from somewhere. I think we can agree on that. And it has a tendency to stagnate to devolve into one-on-one offense if it's Tatum pick and roll, Tatum isolation, Jalen Brown isolation. They don't have that true point guard. They don't have that fundamental ball movement as an identity of theirs. And we've still barely seen Fournier here. In seven games, that's all that he's played. He's been back for the last three after missing a decent chunk due to injury, and he has not been good. He has been awful, in fact, averaging eight and a half a game on 32% from the field. But this guy was a 20-point-per-game scorer, and this year was not an outlier. He's consistently been an 18-plus point-per-game scorer and I think has tremendous versatility for all the reasons I've talked about before. He can handle and play make, lethal off the catch, can get his own shot. And I just feel like we're underselling his potential value to them because he's been terrible for seven games. He's not going to play like this down the stretch. And if you look at his good moments, like his 23-point game against Houston, that is exactly what this team needs. That release valve, that guy who gets that automatic, quick-hitting offense, who doesn't need to isolate up top and demand the ball for that long. He's killer off the ball, and then obviously can run offense with the bench unit, a bench unit that is starved for talented players. So I've made the Fournier case of why he should be a good fit here many times over. I don't need to go into great depth there, but I think he could easily be the driving force for this bench who could explode for 25 a game in a series. And that's crazy. And that takes the Celtics up to another level. And I think he could be their fourth best player. I think in a series, he could be their third best player. And I just think for a team that has been lacking in depth and lacking in that little extra something that they just need to put them over the top, he could be a massive release valve and just a boost to this team as a whole. So do you disagree with the Fournier call? I mean, I think you highlighted exactly why they need why they need him. I think it's 
I think it's the biggest need. The Celtics have to have somebody else who can create, who can score off ball, who can do the little things for this offense that Gordon Hayward did. The just thing is, is that we haven't seen it, man. I mean, Fournier has looked horrid so far in Boston. He looks, I know this is a cliche. He looks lost out there sometimes, man. He can't buy a layup. It's yeah, but don't you just think some of those things are outliers from a weird first seven games with a new team? I'd like to think they're outliers. It's just a we don't have that much left of the season left. I'm just wondering if he can if they can form that cohesion in a short period of time before the playoffs get started. Yeah, and it's a fair question, but I will say he has more time left as far as games to be played than he has played for this team up to this point. So I think there's still a lot of things to be answered about Fournier. And I'll also say Swinging a series could be in the wrong way, too. If he's not knocking down those (laughs) shots, if he doesn't ever fit here, then the Celtics just are not going to come close to reaching the ceiling we hope for. But I think there's a lot more upside than downside there is here because we have seen the worst. If we haven't seen the worst, I will be shocked because I just believe so deeply in Evan Fournier. I've been a huge Fournier advocate for a long time. I think he's shown why time and again, and I just don't think he's had ample opportunities to show why right now. I mean, some of these shooting nights, it's just awful, but... That's what happens when you're a shooter. Sometimes the shots just don't fall. And a lot of the times they do. And sometimes they all fall. And that's how you swing a playoff series. So there's my Evan Fournier case. All right. Last official guy here for you. Who is it? This is a weird one. Probably my uh, most boring pick uh, so far. I've got Marcus Morris here. And the case is pretty simple, man. He is an elite catch and shooter. And when that shot's on, man, he's just hard to stop. And I think for... Uh, a team with two guys that command as much attention as Kawhi and Paul George. He's a guy that just kind of slips through the cracks sometimes and just gets left open. He's got nine 20-point games this season, two 30-point games. And, you know, I talk about just what an elite shooter is. He is 47% uh, from deep this season, 42% and 60% in the corners, over 45% uh, above the break. And he's shooting nearly 48% in the mid-range. He's a decent, is is a weird stat, Carson. This season, Marcus Morris has shot 68% on turnaround fadeaways. He's shooting under 7% on pull-up threes. The man is so good at pivoting and knocking down some of those difficult shots in basketball, but he can't just take a straight-up pull-up three. Uh, this is, in part, uh, a part of something I don't like about Marcus Morris and why he could swing a series, like you said about Fournier, in the opposite direction. I trust him to be a valuable catch and shooter. His shot IQ is off sometimes, man, like with PG and Kawhi out there. Look, dude, I don't want you just holding the rock in the mid-range and putting up a contested shot. Pass the ball, move the rock a little bit. You're not that. You're not Michael Porter Jr. You don't have that authority to take that kind of shot just yet. Uh, <laughs> it's just it's just not the best uh, shot in this Clippers offense. That being said, though, man, Morris is a flamethrower. When he's on, he's on, and he's a hard shooter to stop. It's it's a boring case just because his value to this team is just as a pure catch-and-shooter, but he's been a lead in that role, and he's one of the best catch-and-shooters in the league. Yeah, so I looked for a Clippers guy up and down this roster, and I ended up deciding that there wasn't really a guy who I trusted to be either that Swiss Army knife in that mold that we've discussed or that big-time bucket getter. I thought about Morris. At the end of the day, though, I feel like it really is just about the shot with him. The other guy who I thought about is Rajon Rondo, and I have been a Rondo skeptic as far as this signing. Logan is booing me. Lots of great reactions that I'm getting here. The thing with Rondo is obviously that it would require another jump in his playoff performance, and I disagree with everybody who just went out and proclaimed that the Clippers got their point guard. I don't think that anybody who really... You didn't say that, Logan. You didn't say that they got their point guard. I said that... (laughs) I said they were getting playoff Rondo, that they were going to get a, a a serviceable point guard. I mean, like... Yeah, but he's their bench point guard, though. Like, he's, he's obviously he's not going to be... the best one on their roster. Well, he's the truest point guard. I don't think he is the best guard, and I think that their offense is good enough with Kawhi and PG as the primary ball handlers, and I feel confident saying that given that it is the second best offense of all time. I think that it's safe to say that we don't really need to tinker all that much there, but I do think... I don't know how you could completely write off Rondo given what we saw last year. I also think Luke Kennard is not going to have the opportunity to have the impact he could, but obviously a versatile offensive player. And Terrence Mann, another guy who I just trust to do a lot of little stuff, defensively going to compete, offensively doesn't get his own shot at the highest level, but can enough and can knock down shots and can get into the lane, can cut well. So 
I don't really think the Clippers have that one guy, and that's why at the end of the day, I don't trust them as much as some of the other absolute contenders out West because I think they're too reliant on two players compared to like the Suns who just, I trust their role guys way more. But there's a few candidates here. Honestly, with his defensive and playmaking value, I almost wish I had gone with Rondo. I still think he's an interesting candidate. I want to clarify, though. The only reason I was booing you was because we didn't get a Terrence Mann take. That was all I was waiting for. Okay. I never know. It's interesting because we're doing this one over Zoom as we will be going forward, and I get way more reactions out of Logan. There's booing. There's silent screaming. And I always have to process it and narrate to you guys what's happening. So I am now going off book here. Because I had my four official choices, obviously Bogey being the fifth, but we already discussed that. I have a few candidates here who I think I'll just kind of run down as a group. Dennis Schroeder, obviously, could be that third star for the Lakers. And I think that we've talked about that enough. We don't really need to look into why, but he has not been as reliable this year as you would have wanted. He's been good. He's a really good player. You would expect as much. Obviously, can be just that incisive force getting the bucket when he's shooting well can have that off-ball value, defensively is going to compete, great passer, like all these things that make him such a great player when he's at his best, which should have made him the sixth man of the year last season. We haven't seen it night tonight though, but I still think I trust him in the biggest spots. I think he is a major factor, major factor in the Lakers winning a title this year. Ultimately though, I don't know if that one's interesting enough to really have as my final choice. So I'm going to go with RJ Barrett because I think the Knicks kind of go with RJ and To me, having that second immensely valuable offensive guy is huge for this team that is offensively deficient, obviously, because defensively, we know what they're going to do. Offensively, I think at this point, we can pretty much say that we trust Julius Randle to produce in the big spots and to at least be that volume offensive engine. And then it just comes down to who is the second guy. And for a long stretch now, it has been R.J. Barrett. Post-All-Star break, putting up 19 a game on 42% from three. Crazy development. Can get his own shot. Has that value off-ball because of how he's shooting from beyond the arc right now. Obviously a solid passer and guy who's going to compete at a high level defensively. So it's really hard to win a playoff series in the NBA period, even if it's out East in this year's East, if you just have one really good, really reliable offensive player. And for a stretch of this year, you could have argued that that was the case for the Knicks. And recently they've had two, but it's going to be up to RJ in his second season, really continuing to produce at that reliable level, continuing to knock down those shots. And if he does, I think the Knicks are going to be really, really scary. But I think he's the swing guy with them because who else am I looking at on this roster? Reggie Bullock? Like he's going to shoot 55% from three? I don't think there is anybody else who can really impact winning in the same way RJ can. I would say that a guy like Alfred Payton can negatively impact winning, maybe. But it has to be RJ and Julius if they're going to really go far. Uh, if there's another guy on the roster, I'd probably say Alec Burks or like Emmanuel Quickly to an extent just because they can create what their own shots. D. Rose has been very good uh, as of late. That's a, that's a good one too. Uh, I do think RJ's the second guy definitively though. I mean, yeah. he has to knock down his shots. He has to... I think this playoffs, man, if the Knicks are going to be successful, he also has to go and get his own shot. I know getting into the lane and knocking down pull-ups has been an issue for RJ thus far, but... It's gonna be after, it's gonna be half to something that it's gonna be something that he has to do if the Knicks want to be successful. Um, I will say though, man, the promising thing about RJ recently, dude, it just looks like he's reading the floor better, man. He's reading the game better out of the pick and roll. It looks like the game is, you know, slowing down from a little bit. He's just processing stuff a little better and is a little more relaxed out there. I think Randall has been a huge benefit with his step up just because RJ is not forced to be the focal point of the offense immediately mm-hmm. and have to carry the load himself, but. Um, no, I think RJ is definitely the biggest guy here, man. And he's going to have to, he is going to have to go out and command and get himself some buckets if the Knicks want to win some games. Yeah. And I actually feel like I might've kind of sold short a D Rose or a quickly because D Rose, as I said, has had some really big games and can still be a pretty imposing offensive force when he's getting downhill reliably. Burks is an interesting guy, obviously. Haven't seen him out there for all of the Knicks' win streak. I don't personally think he impacts winning all that much. Like, yeah, the dude can be a bucket, no question. But I don't know. I don't think he's that great of an all-around basketball player. And then quickly, obviously, we love it. Emmanuel quickly here on Nerd Sesh. It's part of our brand. Anybody else off your list who you want to shout out as a candidate here? I'm uh, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, so I think a guy that we briefly touched on, I think DeAndre Hunter's a big one, man. When yes. he is back healthy, 
I, it, it's a thing that we just haven't seen yet, man. Like the Hawks at full health. You talk about all the young talent they've got, man. They are they're deep. And if DeAndre Hunter is playing like he was before the injury, I can see the Hawks honestly maybe making an Eastern Conference Finals push. I genuinely Ooh. mean that. Ooh, hold on, Logan. Think about what that means, though, because they're going to be in the 4-5, which means second they round the they're Knicks. probably playing the Nets. Oh, and then they draw the Nets. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> they, they, could win a ser- they could win a series. Let me, let, me, let me reel that one back in a little bit. Um, another guy here, uh, Bobby Portis is an interesting candidate. Uh, he's been a decent shot blocker down low for the Bucs uh, and uh, you know, just kind of managing the game on the defensive end, but he's a really good catch and shooter. A guy that I wrote down and that you laughed at, Carson, I am going to mention him because I love this guy. You loved him before the draft. Jordan and Wara is just smooth, man, and I don't think he's going to play a big role in the playoffs. I don't even really think he gets all that much PT, but this kid has a smooth stroke, man. He's an elite catch and shooter. Uh, he's shooting 46% uh, this season from deep, man, and I just think, I don't know, man. You give the kid you give the kid some playing time, he can knock down some big shots. I really like Jordan and Wara as a pure shooter, and it's not something that the Bucks are strapped for. They've been a great shooting team this season, but uh in war is just absolutely pure man yeah i'm gonna have to disagree with this choice <laughs> not that i don't like jordan and wara and he's had a couple big games not meaningful ones but has put up 20 plus and a couple of bucks losses in this recent stretch and logan was screaming with glee at the end of the sixers blowout garbage time game as nora was bucketing a few in a row from beyond the arc no jordan and war is not swinging a playoff series logan that is ridiculous i'll throw out one buck who could, though, I think Dante DiVincenzo could really swing a series as the Swiss Army Knife. We love to say it here on Nerd Sesh. It's always true. And if his shot is really reliably falling, man, does he bring a lot of value to you. Obviously, going to be a high-level playmaker for his position. Defensively, is going to play very hard and can get his own bucket a little bit, can get downhill, good athlete. I love Dante DiVincenzo. I always have. And... I don't know who it's going to be for the Bucs who steps up. You could argue even a guy like Drew Holiday or Chris Middleton like are still going to swing the series because we don't know for sure what we're going to get out of them production-wise. But obviously, that's not really the point of what we're doing in this episode. We're focusing on mostly the role guys, maybe a second or third guy, as we've obviously done with a few of these people. But it's not going to be Jordan and Wara. I hate to say it. I hate to just bring down your party, but it's not going to be Jordan and Wara. I think it's an interesting question because obviously he was kind of immediately inserted into a win-now spot. I think he's really good in that win-now spot too, though. And I think also a guy who's going to fight on the glass. And so he just does a lot of really good stuff. And I like that his shot has come along. He's shooting the best he ever has from beyond the arc this year. I don't think there's a tremendously high ceiling. I would say maybe we could see him handling the ball more in some spots. And maybe we would see some more of the playmaking then. But is he ever a 20-point-per-game scorer in this league? I don't think so. I don't think he has the tools to create for himself off the bounce at that level. But I think he could be something more meaningful. I think he could be like a 14-, 15-point-per-game scorer who just does so much all around that he really, really matters on a title team. No, Jordan Noir is not one of those guys. And I think that we'll end on that note. Unless you have anybody else who you really want to shout out, but I think that I've kind of run down my list. I think that this was a fun one, honestly, and I'm very excited to get into some more of the specific playoff preview stuff as the regular season winds down because we've got plenty to tackle ahead of us. So it is summer. We are done with class, and that is a win. But summer also means, particularly this year, as things are obviously moved back a little bit, big time NBA playoffs, baby. And we are excited for all of it. As I mentioned, it also means draft time right now. And so. We're going to talk to you guys about that towards this weekend. As always, you can find a lot more of our content on YouTube. You can find some of the live shows that we've done previously there. We won't be doing any more live shows for this summer because we don't have the resources to, but you can also find a bunch of in-depth video breakdowns that we do there. I just did one on why Jason Tatum has the potential to be an all-time player and what he has to do to get there. Got another one coming soon, part two of a controversial MVP series that I began a couple weeks ago. So there's always going to be content there. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh and on Instagram at nerd sesh. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh.
What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.